Welcome to Carrying on the Go, your exclusive access to the latest news and commentary from the current issue of Caring for the Ages, the official newspaper of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host of Caring on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Welcome to Caring on the Go. I'm your host, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Caring on the Go, a member of the AMDA on the Go podcast series, spotlights articles and stories from Caring for the Ages, the news magazine from AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. With every new issue, we welcome Caring for the Ages editor-in-chief, Dr. Elizabeth Gallick, to discuss some key articles. In this episode, highlighting the October 2022 issue of Caring. This special issue is largely devoted to DEI, or diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is an area that AMDA's board of directors has taken seriously and one that we are being intentional about in all of our committees and educational offerings. So I'm proud to be part of that, and I'm sure you are too, Beth. Absolutely, Carl. It really was a pleasure pulling this issue together. Yeah, really a a fantastic effort. So just to remind our listeners, Dr. Gallick is a nurse practitioner in long-term care and community-based settings through a clinical practice within the Shepherd Pratt Health System. She's a professor at the University of Maryland School of Nursing, where she teaches in the Adult Gerontology Primary Care Nurse Practitioner Program and conducts research to improve care practices for older adults with dementia and their caregivers in long-term care. Beth, welcome back to Caring on the Go. Thanks, Carl. I'm really looking forward to discussing some of these articles with you from our special DEI issue. I also want to um, send out a lot of thanks and and. Uh, gratitude to the uh, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion um, Council with AMDA, who really, um, their, that membership was critical in getting this issue um, out in print. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think there is a lot. I mean, we could probably have an hour-long podcast on, on this uh, issue, but, but listeners, don't worry, it's not going to be an hour. Uh, but I, I would say um, the DEI committee has done so much at AMDA, and for if anyone's interested, uh, there is a lot of content that has gone out uh, from the members of that committee. And for people who want to learn more about it, I encourage you to, to contact uh, AMDA and you can get on that list. So uh, we'll kick off today's session talking about the lead front page article by AMDA board member, Dr. Diane Sanders-Cepeda, entitled, How We Care, Confronting Racial Disparities in Post-Acute and Long-Term Care. I always enjoyed Diane's perspective. And this piece goes way back to when she was an eight-year-old child visiting her great uncle Jabo in a nursing home. And then from there brings us fully forward to the COVID pandemic and the obvious racial inequities that it shed a harsh light on uh, in, in long-term care. So what are your takeaways from this article, Dr. Galley? Well, first I, I enjoyed hearing about Diane's first experience in a nursing home. Uh, where she wondered if that was the place where grandparents would, was were made. 
But I was also <laughs> saddened to hear about the worry that her family had that her great uncle um, potentially wouldn't be cared for properly due to the color of his skin. And they're um, kind of talking amongst family members about the very importance of family needing to be there to monitor for those types of things. Diane goes on to acknowledge that um, systematic racism exists in healthcare um, and it can be conscious or unconscious, unconscious bias of care providers. And also, she also talks about how racial bias has long been infused in medical research and in education. But the great thing about Diane is she always provides a way forward and some tips. Um, mm. Her first one was accepting that race is a social construct and not a biological phenomenon. She gave a really poignant story of her care for um, a Black woman when she was, I think, in her residency who was not responding to um, HCTZ for the treatment of her hypertension. And Diane wanted to change um, to a different antihypertensive, but was unfortunately encouraged by her attending physician to continue the HCTZ due to JNC7 guidelines that had indicated at the time that diuretics should be first-line treatment for hypertension for Black individuals. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. And she, the patient wound up never returning. And so I think that really taught, um, you know, Diane a, a, a very valuable message, um, lesson, how all of this bias is really kind of infused in, in um, research as well as what we're taught. The second thing she um, emphasized was recognizing the impact of social determinants of health. And as healthcare providers, uh, we all really need to be more fully aware of the disadvantages and barriers um, that impact uh, people of color in, in healthcare. And it's things like economic stability, um, neighborhood environments, access to education, um, and access to food and healthcare. And then lastly, um, she talks about the importance of creating a culture of trust and care experiences um, with our patients and um, encourages us to learn and to recognize that unconscious bias and really treat people as individuals who are, are worthy of our respect and build those um, important relationships over time. Yeah, it, it had a lot in it. And I, I, I think probably all of us have experienced uh, some of that. And when you look at just statistically uh, the, um, disproportionate uh, effects of the pandemic on, uh, you know, people of color. Uh, it's, it's somewhat shocking and yet maybe not so shocking in the context of, of where we are. But again, I hope we are moving forward. As far as having family present all the time, I mean, I think that cuts across all uh, races, ethnicities, whatever, what have you. Uh, you know, it's, uh, if you want your loved one to get good care in a nursing home, uh, the more you're there, the better, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, okay. So the next article also on our front page is by our senior reporter, Joanne Calby. And this one is about the unique needs and challenges of Native American long-term care residents. Uh, I have to admit, I've taken care of very few Native Americans in nursing homes throughout my career, but I'm sure there are parts of the country where there are many. Um, so Beth, any experiences you've had and what made this article stand out to you? So like you, um, Carl, the Native American population where 
I um, live and practice in the Baltimore area is, is relatively low. So unfortunately, I haven't had the opportunity um, really to care for indigenous populations in, in my career. Um, but what I really enjoyed learning about was in this article was how tribal nursing homes were able to reach out to CMS and um, collaborate um, with them to find solutions when um, the cultural needs and preferences of the residents were in conflict with surveyor and regulatory guidance. So there is an organization that um, the tribal nursing homes um, um, pulled together called Uniting Nursing Homes in Tribal Excellence. And it included uh, nursing homes uh, and assist, well, mostly nursing homes on tribal lands and um, partnered with CMS to um, address issues related to uh, really uh, cultural preferences. And that could be in relation to um, access to traditional foods, how the room was set up and um, making sure that staff had proper education and sensitivity to the importance of certain ceremonies and customs, particularly at end of life. Um, and I, I liked one of the quotes in the um, article where advice was given um, to those of us who may not be very familiar with Native American uh, culture, that it's okay to say you don't know about culture, but that you want to learn. Yeah, I think keeping that, that um, you know, the humility, right? The just uh, teach me about you, right? I, I don't help me understand uh, what it is, you know, what we can do to make things better for you. I wonder, you know, because, uh, you know, on a reservation and so on, it's kind of like its own autonomous uh, area or, or almost like a, like a, you know, foreign country or something like that sovereign. Uh, they probably don't have to follow federal regulations. They could probably have their own set of regulations. But I guess if they did that, they probably would not uh, qualify for federal funding. And obviously that's important in financing uh, long-term care. My, my understanding, at least from reading the article, was um, that they are required to follow federal guidelines. Um, and But they worked with CMS to, um, you know, provide additional guidance to surveyors that was really based on um, cultural needs and preferences, but that, um, you know, nursing homes on, on tribal lands um, still have to follow uh, CMS guidelines. Yeah, yeah, probably similar to what the, some of the greenhouse places do and so on, like, you know, they still have to follow the regs, but there are certain, certain areas of leeway, I guess, <laughs> which is good, right? Uh, leeway is good, I, I think. Yep. And now, a word from our sponsor. Looking for a safe space to talk about controversial issues that affect your residents and staff? Look no further than AMDA's Edge 22 Virtual Symposium on Friday, October 28th. Topics include the call for nursing home reform that has been highlighted in a recent report from the National Academies of Science, the intersection of diversity, equity, and inclusion. When does gradual dose reduction do more harm to a patient than good? And the ethical and legal aspects of medical error in post-acute and long-term care. The symposium will conclude with divergence at edge, an opportunity for presenters and participants to debate controversial topics such as legalizing medical marijuana, 
cardiac medications in older adults, and COVID isolation. Access the complete program details and register at paltc.org slash edge. That's paltc.org slash edge. We hope to see you there. And now back to our podcast. Uh, so next, let's talk about your caring collaborative article on page two, entitled "Learning to Be an Ally: Promoting DEI in Long-Term Care." This is a great topic, and I think many of us in the leadership at AMDA have been aware that our membership traditionally has been uh, older white men, although the demographics have gradually changed over the years. I've been around to reflect more people of color and more women. Uh, and I also like the notion of being open to learning about this and accepting that even though, I'm just gonna speak for myself, even though I don't have overt biases, I may have unconscious or implicit biases. And I know there are a lot of people out there who just resist that notion. You know, it's like, I'm not racist, uh, you know, for all the reasons that I'm not racist and are completely closed off to even the possibility that there may be some stuff going on in their brain that they're just not aware of. Uh, so, and it seems like uh, just even politically and so on, all the the implicit bias and there are places where people aren't even allowed to discuss it or, or that sort of thing. It's uh, it's kind of shocking So and disappointing. So I, I'm glad that I feel open to it. I, I hope most of our listeners feel open to that. And uh, what do you want our listeners to know about what you learned when you wrote this piece? So, you know, I guess one of the things that um, has been coming to mind for me more recently is that um, the leadership within post-acute and long-term care doesn't typically represent um, the direct care workforce or right. the patient populations that we serve. And we need to be cognizant of the mess, the message that this can send to staff and to patients and families. And my hope is that um, over time, the leadership really needs to become uh, my more diverse in post-acute and long-term care. Um, we also know um, that there's a, a couple of things that, that we can do to kind of help with this. And some of this is you know, a little bit re um, repetitive with um, some of the points Diane shared, but um, I, I recommended kind of three steps. One is really recognizing um, our unconscious bias because we all have them. Um, I just mentioned briefly that Stanford University School of Medicine um, has a, a CME activity um, that's free and can be completed online. And it specifically focuses on identifying your own bias um, in healthcare and provided the link to that. The next has to do with um, building inclusivity within a team. And uh, I had a couple points to make there. Uh, making a point to know each of your team members and learn the correct, correct pronunciation of their names because we have um, many team members who are coming from um, different countries and cultures, and we want to be able to show respect by uh, knowing how to address them. Um, also, celebrating and learning about team members' cultures and traditions, not just our own, and being intentional about sharing leadership opportunities within the group and acknowledging that 
the number of years of formal education and training you have alone doesn't always make us leaders or experts in every single factor of, of care for <laughs> residents. So acknowledging that other, other people have things to share. And then last, really promoting the development of safe environments and relationships that um, hopefully will foster honest discussions about dealing with the inequities among team members. Um, and yeah. then one one last thing I forgot, sorry about that, um, mm. is promoting equity and career advancement. So um, we need to ad address strategies to address the wage gap and benefits of the post-acute long-term care workforce, particularly the direct care workforce. And while some facilities may have tuition remission programs for staff who want to advance their education, it's also really important that we recognize and financially reward the expert nursing assistants and nurses and other direct caregivers who want to remain within their current role, but have some type of um, career advancement opportunity. Um, so right now, for some of these individuals, career advancement is only available if they want to change to a more of an administrative role or change careers. So I think that those are some things that we could do. That is a lot of great advice. And, you know, one thing about this uh, implicit bias sort of business is that it's not easy, right? And it's uh, some of it feels, you know, clinical stuff is easy. There's numbers and, and, and you know, statistics and number needed to treat and, and relative risk and whatnot. And this is not like that. And it's, it's also uncomfortable. Uh, you know, it, it makes, you know, uh, like I previously took that Harvard implicit association test uh, online. And um, when I saw this in your article, I, I did that free CME from Stanford. Um, and, uh, you know, it showed me some of my own unconscious biases. And I really didn't like, I mean, it's always good to know things, but, uh, you know, it sort of makes you perhaps feel, it made me feel, I don't know, a little disappointed in myself. Uh, but I think it's really important. And that's how you grow. Uh, so I encourage our listeners, if you haven't uh, taken the Harvard and the Stanford, uh, by the way, it's a yeah, it's a free hour of CME, and it was uh, kind of clever. And um, I encourage our listeners to do that and, and follow the link. Uh, Beth, anything else on that? Yeah, really, the the first step in changing is recognizing what those unconscious biases might be. So while it's uncomfortable, um, you know, I, I think it's something important that we should consider. Yeah, yeah, that that is the first step. Um, well, great. So finally, let's talk about the article on page nine from associate editor Paige Hector called Ageism in Post-Acute and Long-Term Care. Is that possible? <laughs> and Paige has some great quotes from published works on, on ageism and some recommendations for excellent reading for those who want to dig in more, including uh, something from Ashton Applewhite and from Jill vitali Ausem. Uh, one thing she didn't, Paige didn't include uh, elderhood, uh, uh, which is uh, uh, another great, uh, great book. Uh, but anyway, I have to admit, when I was editor-in-chief of Caring, I probably used the word elderly more times than I can count. And, and yet, you know, in retrospect, it's so clearly an ageist term. And, you know, I, uh, I, I'm the guy that uh, now is is telling people don't use that word, you know, annoying people. Uh, I'm sure I also early in my career used 
uh, infantilizing and patronizing language in addressing some of my older patients. So uh, yeah, I'm I was teachable. I I've, I've learned uh, uh, that that's uh, that's not a good thing. It can be very destructive. And uh, so anyway, Dr. Gallick, what parts of this article resonated with you? So I was really struck with the recognition that in many instances, long-term care facilities are often designed with ageist notions. And and I, I didn't really think of it that way. Um, but Paige describes that um, there's kind of this assumption of lack of agency for residents. And the purpose um, is for staff to take care of people who live there and not and not to support or enhance their independence necessarily. So we may say that we promote independence, but mm -hmm. if we're not letting people make decisions, even if they're ones that we disagree with and they have capacity to make those decisions, you know, aren't we being a bit paternalistic? Mm -hmm. um, and then also kind of considering the ways we manage risk um, in, in many instances can kind of unintentionally translate into denying residents kind of their own agency. So um, that that kind of was thought provoking um, for me. And, and she had all their good tips in there, um, a lot about language. So things like avoiding the use of spry or um, mm -hmm. avoiding qualifiers, of, uh, you know, for your age or you know, not using terms like you mentioned, like elderly, um, and then avoid asking people how old they are. Um, so some some interesting things uh, to think about, um, particularly for, um, you know, practitioners and, and others who really uh, care, care for in terms of um, appreciate and respect and uh, want to see good things for the older adults that they that they work with. But um, you know, how are we still uh, potentially still have some ageist uh, uh, biases about us? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Paige brought up some great points there. And it's funny. I mean, I, when somebody tells me I look great for my age or I, oh, you know, I would have thought you were 50 or, you know, whatever. I, I always take it as a compliment. But I um, and I still sometimes, you know, obviously, if I'm a doctor going in, I've got the chart. I know how old somebody is. And um, sometimes I can't resist uh, telling somebody that uh, they look fabulous. I, I don't have to say for your age. I, I mean, but it's probably implied. Uh, you know, uh, also what you mentioned about, um, you know, nursing facilities are very risk averse. And in, in a lot of markets, they are highly litigated. And uh, you want to promote independence on the one hand. But, you know, when somebody falls and breaks a hip or has a subdural, you wind up getting sued. and um, you know, it's a, that's a hard, uh, I, I don't think there's a clear answer to that, but whatever we can do to promote autonomy and allow people to make informed decisions, obviously, uh, that is, that's what we all would want for ourselves. Um, by the way, uh, elderhood, I don't think I mentioned it was, it's by Dr. Louise Aronson, my, uh, California colleague out here. Uh, so this issue is really chock full of wisdom. And while most of it isn't clinical, I think it's of great practical importance and it includes, it includes topics that some of our listeners might not relish learning about, but really ought to. 
So I wanted to just mention a few, and then maybe you've got some also. But uh, uh, Joanne Caldi's piece on page eight about celebrating LGBTQ residents in our care settings, and even just being respectful and mindful of their needs and sensibilities. Uh, there's been a lot of work done on this topic, and there is a big gap still. I think uh, many of our providers and staff uh, need more on that. In California, uh, all SNF personnel, and this includes medical directors, uh, must take an hour of content on LGBTQ issues in long-term care once every two years. Uh, then uh, doctors Kelman and Shake parse out cultural humility, a concept I'm fond of, uh, and cultural competence on page six. Dear Dr. Steve Levinson talks about cognitive biases in his column, and many of these may also be unconscious or implicit. So that's another good place where we can do some introspection uh, in, our, in our clinical practices. And Dr. Fatima Nakvi on page 11 talks about cultural diversity as it relates to advanced care planning, another of my favorite topics. And I, I can't leave out Dr. Jerry Winokur, who channels Dr. Joanne Lynn in his column about shifting paradigms and maybe pay, payment reform also around long-term care. So I don't think I even included half of the articles in this jam-packed issue. And it took me a few days to read the whole thing. So listeners, uh, I hope that you will enjoy, enjoy digesting all of this food for thought and, and really uh, give it a good read. Uh, Dr. Gallick, before we close, do you have any final comments or wisdom to share on these, or is there anything else in the issue you wanted to highlight? So um, I, I wanted to highlight two things um, quickly. One was Hannah Buck, um, Hannah Murphy Buck's um, article on home um, people experiencing homelessness, older adults experiencing homelessness and access to palliative and end-of-life mm -hmm. care. We yes. often don't think of um, those populations as um, in, you know, in need of, of end-of-life care, but it, it gives us some examples of how we could do that and some of the things that she has done as a nurse. And then another interesting article um, was um, by our, one of the pharmacists, Robert Aceta, who talked about racial disparities um, and factors that influence prescribing of antipsychotics for minority nursing home residents. So two great ones. And then lastly, um, uh, we're going to be having a um, regular um, diversity corner article that mm. is going to appear in several issues throughout caring in the um, upcoming year. So beginning in January, we have our first um, column by Dr. Fatima Nakvi. So I look forward to that and having that be a regular part of caring. That's great. I'm glad to hear that. That's uh, very in line with uh, with AMDA's mission and our goals. So uh, the wonderful stuff, really kudos on this this fabulous issue. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Not that I don't always thoroughly enjoy it, right? But I especially thoroughly enjoyed it uh, this time. So that's going to wrap it up for October's Caring on the Go podcast. Under the leadership of Editor-in-Chief Dr. Elizabeth Gallick and Managing Editor Tess Bird, Caring for the Ages continues to report and reflect the outstanding work being done by AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, and its leaders, members, and communities. Please take a look at the October issue, available as always without a paywall, at www.caringfortheages.com. And please recommend and share caring with your friends and colleagues. 
Dr. Gallick, thank you again for spending your time with Caring on the Go. Thanks, Carl. All right, and now until next time, I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg, Caring on the Go. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast.